Is that your is that your study? Is this where is this where all the magic happens? Oh, the magic! Yes, this is my study. This is I'm just sitting at my desk. Um, I've got my I said I look like a, I always look like a sort of complete narcissist when I sit here because I've got foreign editions of my own <laughs> behind me. But they're so they're so nice. They cheer me up seeing those. So I, I, I mean, if if only I could sit in a study with foreign editions of my books behind me, I'd be thrilled. So no, I mean, go for it. It should all be your books. Hello and welcome to Shelf Life. I'm Aaron Hicklin. Hello, my guest today is the writer Sarah Waters. Her debut novel, the racy Victorian picaresque Tipping the Velvet, was published in 1998 and garnered huge attention and praise challenging the publishing industry's consensus that gay characters were niche. It was adapted by the BBC in 2002, a genuine television event that coincided with the publication of her third novel, Fingersmith, a heart-stopping gothic thriller. Fingersmith was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the first of three novels to achieve the distinction, the others being The Night Watch and The Little Stranger, a spine-chiller that Stephen King anointed the best book he read in 2009, and King is no slouch when it comes to reading. She has said, it's interesting that I become known as a feminist writer. We tend to think of feminism as being about women breaking out of old models, finding new ways of living. But I'm really much more drawn to writing about the limitations on women's lives, because I think I'm interested in the fact that most people in life do feel rather limited. And there is something rather tragic about the way in which we don't really realize our great hopes and desires. That's the sort of stuff that draws me as a writer more than anything else. Sarah, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I interviewed you in 2014 on the publication of your last novel, The Paying Guest, and I have a very vivid memory of meeting in this glorious London park um, for a picnic, which you gamely agreed to. Um, we, we each brought various foodstuffs to that picnic and it was a sunny day, it was spring. Um, it, it feels a world away from, from the year we've just had, from a year of lockdowns and face masks and social distancing. As someone who I know is a big walker and spends a lot of time in libraries, I wonder how the pandemic has affected your writing process. Yes, thank you. Yes, it's very nice to be here. I remember that interview as well. It was in Ruskin Park in South London, where part of The Paying Guest, my last book, was set. It was, it was lovely to be there, wasn't it? And it does feel like just sitting on a park bench with a friend feels like I'm still a long way off at the moment. The pandemic for me, I mean, it's been a mixed experience, as it perhaps has for lots of people. Um, as a writer, you're sort of locked down <laughs> a lot of the time. And last year and this year as well are, are kind of writing years for me. I'm hoping to finish a book this year. So my working life hasn't changed that much. And in some ways, I've you know welcomed the lack of distractions. I mean, in, in many ways, of course, your novels are all about people who lived in times with a lot more limitations than our own in terms of, you know, their access to the kind of global slipstream of events and news and entertainment. Um, there was really a finite number of things for people to do. They had to sort of create their own entertainments. So your, your characters are kind of ready-made for a pandemic, I would yes, think. Yes, I guess they are, some more than others. I mean, actually, you, some of the things you've said, you might think that about the Victorians, but actually 
you know, the Victorians were really good at entertainments. They, they knew how to have a good time. You know, you think of all the big theatres and music halls and palaces of fun and pleasure gardens, you know, when they had a night out, they had a pretty good time. And like, you know, some of my characters have enjoyed that aspect of, of like Victorian life. I'm thinking of my first three novels, which were all set in the 19th century and particularly mm-hmm. the Velvet you mentioned, you know, that's partly set in the world of music halls. But then, say, my second novel, Affinity, yes, people's lives were much more circumscribed, quite literally in the case of it part, partly set in a women's prison. It's like you're reclaiming history for queer people, for gay men and women, to have happy endings at a time we generally assume to have been pretty bleak if you were, if you were gay or lesbian. Yes, again, that's varied. I mean, Affinity is, is the novel that's, that's a really gloomy novel with a rather tragic end to it. But certainly, I think, you know, if you're a gay or a lesbian writer, especially of my generation or or older, you're very conscious of the tradition of lesbian writing that you grew up with, which was very gloomy. You know, it was very hard to find a lesbian or gay character in print or on telly when I was growing up, you know, who didn't commit suicide or, or was just sort of punished or something or kind of went mad or... Uh, or was just basically, you know, living in the twilight, a kind of furtive, shameful life. So I've definitely at times wanted my books not to go down that route. And I think with the last book, The Paying Guests, it is a love story. It's a, it's a crime novel as well, in a way. But at the heart of it, it's a love story between two women. And I really, for me, they were really on the line. But, you know, could I could I give them a happy ending? They, they get into a really a real predicament. You know, I put, really put my characters through the mill sometimes and they come out kind of sadder, wiser women at the end. Right. You don't um, you don't in any way lessen or minimise the massive obstacles and challenges to being a woman in love with another woman. Yes, um, no, absolutely. <sighs> absolutely. I mean, now that we're seeing more sort of lesbian and gay characters in period dramas, we often do see them sort of living unproblematically, kind of maybe sort of slightly secretive, but, um, you know, sort of they're just part of the landscape now it's become part of the sort of way we tell period stories and certainly there was room in history for happy gay relationships to to thrive but i think you're doing a disservice to to lesbian gay history if you don't attend to those very real pressures that were were on gay people's lives and of course in the case of men in 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 britain you're at risk of of criminalization for most of the 20th century really and for women, there were there were other sorts of menaces and dangers to being a lesbian, to being out, especially being an out lesbian. So it's been um, there's been all sorts of all sorts of things for gay people to negotiate, all sorts of dangers and perils. But they've also been able to have have kind of wonderful romances and all sorts of happy lives as well. You mentioned the kind of I don't want to call it a a trend because trends suggest they have a finite time, but the appearance of a lot more LGBTQ storylines in films and in television dramas. I'm thinking of things like Gentleman Jack, a series of movies that just came out. I I happened to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently, which was incredible. This would have been extraordinary to me when I was a student. And I was a student when the BBC screened Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, the adaptation of the Jeanette Winterson autobiographical novel about her own coming of age and and coming out. And that was such an extraordinary, galvanizing, exciting moment on television. And here we are 30 years later, and it feels that almost every other week there is some vehicle on TV or in the the cinema that explores historical queer lives. 
Yes, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I remember seeing Orange is Not the Only Fruit on TV as well. I was living in a lesbian house show at the time in Hackney, which was the most lesbian part of London in those days. I mean, you know, we gathered around the telly. It was a real, it was a real event, wasn't it, watching that? And that felt extraordinary itself just to see that. But as you say, the way things have changed um, just in the, in, in the time since I came out as a young lesbian in the early 90s. And it's true, I suppose, that Tipping the Velvet was kind of at the start of the, that really accelerated change that happened from, you know, the beginning of the 21st century onwards. I mean, it's interesting for me, you know, writing about lesbians in the past didn't feel at all novel because I had spent a long time reading lots of lesbian and gay fiction. Patience and Sarah by Isabel Miller, the American novelist, um, was a big book for me. That was one of the first lesbian novels I read when I was a student. You know, it's based on the life of two 19th century American women, real life women, and it sort of fleshes out their story. It's a beautiful novel. There was Lillian Faderman's book, Surpassing the Love of Men, which was a sort of historical survey of um, lesbian life from Sappho onwards, I think. And that really blew me away, you know, reading that just to realise that lesbianism, that sexuality had a sort of history, you know, that lesbians weren't just this sort of weird modern social problem, but that they'd been there throughout history in different forms, of course, and, you know, whether we want to call them lesbian or not, I don't know, but, you know, there's, some, there's, there's mm. something that we have a history. So, but what, what changed, of course, was that these, these sorts of books went mainstream. When I was reading lesbian fiction in the 90s, it was very much published by small lesbian or feminist presses here in the UK. There was a women's press, Pandora, uh, Virago, who now published me. But there was definitely something that shifted uh, in the early 2000s, which I think was partly about sort of the, the cultural canon kind of opening up a bit to include new voices. It was it was partly the result of political agitation on the on the part of lesbian and gay activists who'd been very very active in the 90s. Um, it was partly a, a Labour government getting in that was sympathetic to lesbian and gay issues. But but yeah, so the whole thing about um, the sort of period stuff is interesting, isn't it? I absolutely loved Gentleman Jack. I have to say, I thought it was just brilliant. I loved to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which mm. was just even though it's it does it doesn't have a happy ending. It's in a sense it's so rich. It so obviously pays so much attention to the kind of complex dynamic between its two, you know the two women in it, and it you know it's, it really feels there's something very affirming about that for lesbian viewers. I think. But yes, we do mm. seem to be rather in love with lesbian period dramas. Fanny by Gaslight, somebody called the, the genre to me once, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> um, I do love that genre. I mean, it slightly troubles me. I sort of think, why is that? Well, you know, is it because it makes it a bit safe, you know, a bit sort of sepia-toned? That was certainly not something I was trying to do when I wrote my lesbian historical novels. I really didn't want them to seem sepia-toned. You know, I was trying to slightly overturn our kind of sepia um, ideas about the 19th century um, but it is interesting and you don't really see gay men getting getting that kind of treatment do you they tend to be sort of contemporary and edgy and I'd like I must admit I would like to see more sort of contemporary set lesbian dramas well we're going to talk more about Victorian literature I'm sure but we're, we're here today to discuss two books that you've chosen on your list of favorite reads for one ground books uh, the first of which is Grimm's fairy tales what was it about these stories, and we're all familiar with them through osmosis, even if we haven't read them directly, that, that made such an impression on you as a, as a child? Yeah, I mean, my book of Grimm's fairy tales is this rather beautiful um, 
Picador edition that my sister bought for me when I was about 10 or 11, I think. And one of the things I love about it, it's got, it's got the illustrations by Mervyn Peake, which are just brilliantly suited to the stories. He was a fantastically kind of... Well, whimsical isn't the right word. He's more gothic than that. But his pictures have got a real kind of strangeness to them. And I think that's part of what attracted me to these stories when I read them in this form, because I'd grown up, you know, we all grow up exposed to fairy tales, but it's very much the Disney version, you know, or the pantomime version. You don't really have pantomimes in, in the US, but pantomimes are a sort of staple British theatrical tradition of sort of fairy tales, you know, in sort of theatrical extravaganzas and family entertainment. I, we would go and see a pantomime when I was a kid, you know, every Christmas, really. And those versions of fairy tales are very upbeat and sanitised. And when you when you go back to these sort of original tales in the Grimm's, you realise that they're much darker and stranger. I remember feeling that as a child. They're odd, the stories. There's violence in them. They're dark. Strange things happen just, you know, randomly. Um, you know, they were in a very different tradition from the other sorts of children's books I might have been reading. You know, they have the logic of dream or nightmare. They come really, I think, from partly from the unconscious. And so, yeah, I found them really quite mesmerising as a child and still do. I, I still find them odd and haunting now, definitely. Of course, we, we attribute these stories to the, to the Brothers Grimm, uh, but they really just recorded them. Often, and usually in conversations with women, they travelled around Germany, basically, um, uh, archiving these stories um, that had been handed down from generation to generation. Uh, and they, they intended them as a sort of academic anthology for scholars of, of German culture. They didn't really imagine that they would be read as sort of bedtime stories by children. No, it's interesting. I mean, the history of fairy tales is a fascinating thing. There have been lots of great books written about them. I mean, Jack Zipes has written wonderfully about the history of fairy tales because there, there you know there's no original fairy tale as you say they come originally out of sort of community stories and have gone through all sorts of transformations over the years everybody who has passed a fairy tale on including the, the brothers groom has their own agenda you know which gets sort of overlaid on them and often they've become very moralistic when if you go back to some of the originals they're sort of stranger than that I mean, what strikes me reading them now is how much they are folk tales, really, rather than fairy tales. And, you know, they sort of, they do have kind of lessons for children, you know, lessons about telling the truth or or not breaking promises and things like that. But they're really also lessons that, that communities need to follow as well, aren't they? You know, if, you're, if your horse dropped dead, it was a calamity. You know, if you had too many children and you couldn't feed them all. It was a disaster. If your neighbour let you down, you know, if your neighbour borrowed your plough and then didn't give it back, it, it was dreadful. They are sort of moralistic. But then again, you get these tales where you get sort of wily peasants, you know, getting the upper hand, or the or the, it's the youngest son who all the other sons laugh at and think is a simpleton who gets the fortune and the girl in the end. So I think they're kind of... Comp they're often they're sort of compensatory fantasies for people who do feel sort of vulnerable and hard done by and of course children often feel vulnerable and hard done by because they often are and I, I think that's part of the appeal of the stories for children the world is is a bit baffling when you're a child and magic seems like it might almost be true I remember as a child being very enthralled to certain kinds of magic thinking you know if I do this then maybe that will happen or this has happened but it's because I didn't do that you know and I was brought up Catholic as well which is even worse because that's just <laughs> endless magic thinking um so the story sort of to, to that sort of mentality, you know, the stories make sense, I think. They tell you, they feel like they're telling you something very true about, about the world. 
I, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about your childhood in Wales. I, I do, you know, associate Catholicism with a kind of belief in superstition, um, a belief in in magic in a way. Full of magic objects and yes. rituals, you know, so it's not surprising. Um, at the heart of it, there's this magic trick, you know, the sort of bread and the wine getting turned into flesh and blood. I mean, it's, it's a very heady, heady faith. I sort of left it you know, as a young teenager, I never became a kind of adult thinking Catholic. So my relationship with Catholicism is still very much the, something that had that power over me in, in childhood. And also, I didn't grow up with it in Wales. I We, moved, we made a move as a family to the northeast, um, to Middlesbrough. So at the age of eight, I was suddenly in a Catholic school and had to very, very quickly get the lingo, you know, and sort of I had this kind of fast track Catholic education, which I remember being quite odd. Back to the fairy tales, the Grimm's obviously catalogued hundreds of these stories. Which of them has resonated most with you? Well, I was just reading my lovely edition of, of Household Tales, and I think it's still the ones that stand out for me in childhood. So Cinderella, Snow White, and The Goose Girl, which is a much less well-known story. But they're all stories about, well, I was going to say vulnerable young people, really, you know, having to sort of face down various dangers and, and find a happy ending. But specifically, they're about young women. And I think folk, fairy tales often are, you know, they do often home in on women when they're making this move from girlhood to womanhood, you know, in a patriarchy. So it's a very perilous time for young young women in fairy tales when they're making this transition. They're suddenly vulnerable to sort of um, unwanted sexual attentions. They, ha- they need to find a man, you know, they need to find a husband in order to get themselves in, in a household with some status and respectability. Um, that, you know, patriarchy kind of pits women against each other. So that's all in there as well. And I think... Yes, Cinderella and Snow White, they, you know, they capture the sort of weird, and the Goose Girl, capture the sort of weird violence, really, of the strictures, you know, that surround women um, at certain times in their lives. Of course, you know, Cinderella, as we know it today, the pantomime Cinderella that you might see on at Christmas in London is very different to the Cinderella that, that the Grimm's recorded, which was much more violent. I think the sisters chop their feet off to get into the slipper. Um, birds, birds peck out their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> one chops her heel off, the other one chops her toes off, um, which, God, I remember loving. I was very bloodthirsty as a child. My only other reading, really, was sort of horror stories and ghost stories. So these, these fitted right in with that, you know, the gothicness of the tales. Um, and then, of course, in, um, which one is it? Snow White, where the, the, the queen, the wicked queen, who has tried to kill Snow White, wants, tries to... What's to eat her heart? That's another important thing. You know, she, Snow White is suddenly fairer than she is. So she gets the huntsman to take her away and kill her, and he decides not to do it. But he brings her back a heart, which is a, a deer's heart, I think. And she eats it, thinking it's uh, Snow White's. And, you know, you see the tales for like really sort of going back into, the, into some sort of very, very deep kind of primal thing there with details like that. But in the end, she gets... She gets, um, they heat up a pair of iron shoes, don't they? Red hot slippers. Yes, yes. yes. And they fasten them on her feet. And she has to dance herself to death, which is extraordinary. A few years ago, I went to Rodenberg in Germany, which has, which has a museum of torture. And actually, there is these, as well as the torture instruments, which are really ghastly, there are these extraordinary sort of shaming 
things like shaming masks and shaming helmets with kind of big bells on them and shaming boots, metal boots with big bells on them that people were kind of made to wear if they transgressed the sort of community code in some way and they were made to wear and walk down the street. And it does make you think, actually, you know, these red hot shoes, they're not as outlandish as, as you might think. And certainly the way, the way that the women are punished, transgressive women are punished, you know, the older women or the, the presumptuous stepsisters. Um, so a huge influence on me as a writer, for example, was Angela Carter, who did those brilliant retellings of fairy stories in the Bloody Chamber. And I read those when I was an older teenager. I was about 17, I think. And they, I mean, I just had such an impact on me, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that I'd loved these stories in one way and then was, was a young feminist and then read these tales of hers, which kind of did tap into the sort of violence, you know, and the misogyny of some of the stories, but also the possibilities in the stories there were for transformation, you know, for women right. to, to find new, new ways of being in the world. And I know other, you know, other feminist writers have done that. Anne Sexton has done something like that with mm. her poems, Transformations. It's impossible to read them without a feminist perspective, I think, these days. Um, right, right. You know, without thinking about what are these stories actually saying about how women should behave and how they're going to get punished if they step out of line. How, how do you think they have influenced and sort of filtered into your own writing? Well, I mean, I don't think I've ever consciously you know sort of taken on a fairy tale in a book of mine but i think especially with those victorian ones you know there's a big overlap between the world of fairy tales and the world of the gothic and the world of melodrama you know melodrama is a genre that i've loved in the movies and melodrama and the gothic and fairy tales have always been a really good forum for kind of playing out very female stories you know the sort of psychic dramas of female life have a home really in these slightly hysterical kind of I say that in a good way slightly hysterical kind of genres Dickens was a was a fantastically melodramatic writer and often you know there's an overlap between him and fairy tales if you think of somebody like Miss Havisham Great Expectations she's completely out of fairy tale you know with that arrested yeah. life yeah. that she that she leads she's a kind of sleeping beauty a weird sleeping beauty that side of Victorian culture with its sort of moral absolutes and and its extreme events and calamities and reversals and transformations and punishments and rewards. That's definitely something that fed into my, my, my first three novels, you know, with their Victorian settings, absolutely. So from Grimm's fairy tales, which are all about plot and suspense and happy endings or sometimes tragic endings, to your second choice, which is really a, a book without plot, the, the 11-volume My Secret Life by Anonymous. Um, tell me something about this book, Sarah, and, and why you chose it. I haven't read every single word of it, but I've, it's, a sort of, it's so episodic. I mean, you were saying that fairy tales are all plot, and this is kind of plotless, really, um, and you can dip in and out of it. It's, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful work for that. I mean, it's a deeply problematic book to read in all sorts of ways, not least because... You know, it's an it's an anonymous book. The, the the author styles himself Walter, and it's it's the history of his of his sexual life from a child onwards. Um, he would literally go anywhere for sex and would have sex with any kind of woman and some men. Um, and then was was as obsessive about writing it down, um, apparently. Um, but one thing that makes it problematic is that lots of the lots of the encounters he has with women that he would call a seduction are coercive and unpleasant, and we would more properly call them rapes. So, you know, it's it's a troubling book to read. But at the same time, 
it's it's an extraordinary read. We don't know how true it is. Some people have called it a kind of fantasy autobiography um, or a mixture of sort of actual, you know, autobiography and fantasy. Uh, all I can say is it's it 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 doesn't read like pornography because pornography is very you know everything works in pornography. It's sort of one kind of successful sexual encounter after another. The characters are sort of stock characters you know they're sort of two-dimensional but in this book you know he writes as much about his sexual failures as about his sexual successes um sometimes he's thwarted in his attempt to have sex or he's impotent occasionally and worries about that he'll have sex and then worries he's got the clap and then stop having sex for a while and then he'll start it again and the, the women in it even the even the very sort of very minor characters in it to me, do ask do seem kind of individualized in an, in a novelistic way. It reads; mm. it's got all the kind of pull and charm uh, of, of a novel. And because Walter was such a sexual obsessive and would go absolutely anywhere for a shag, you get these wonderful sort of incidental social details, <laughs> which for anybody interested in the nineteenth century are as compelling as anything else. You know, I mean, they're more compelling really than the sex acts because, after all, there's only really you know, there's a limit to to the variety of, of, of ways you can have sex, but you get these amazing glimpses. You know, Walter has sex in, in omnibuses, you know, in theatres, in church once or twice, in parks, in streets, in brothels and, and houses of assignation. You get this extraordinary window onto the lives of women who were working as prostitutes. You see that sometimes some of those women have um, romantic sexual relationships with each other, you know. You're seeing things that you don't see in respectable Victorian fiction. And I think that's the key, you know, what makes it so startling is because we take all our images and, and uh, ideas about, about Victorian life, partly from Victorian fiction, which was, which was mainstream and respectable and, and could not portray these things. So a writer like um, Stephen Mar Marcus, who wrote a book called The Other Victorians, he talks about My Secret Life. And he says that it's great to read this alongside a writer like Dickens or Wilkie Collins because there, there were certain things they could hint at, you know, about the relationships between between men and fallen women, for example. You know, it's all it's kind of all there, but it's implicit. But in Walter, it's it's right there in front of you. And what's laid bare, particularly in My Secret Life, is the sort of the dynamic between moneyed upper middle class men like him and and working working women who were kind of seen as as fair game, really. For um, for sort of sexually coercive upper class men, and that's that's the dynamic that absolutely unpins nearly all of his. You know, he's he's having sex with most of these women because he's paying for it. Or instant, you know, mm. he's, he's giving them money, and so their motives are fascinating. You know, whether they're the way that they're negotiating his sort of expectations of them. But yeah, you do just get these extraordinary glimpses of of, of women's lives, working class women's lives, domestic life prostitutes lives that you just don't find anywhere else and it's uh, it's an extraordinary document really you started sort of studying lesbian and gay historical fiction and i imagine finding works like this along the way when you were a student in whistable is, is that do i have that correct well, not quite. I did. I was a student in Whitstable. That's where I did my first English degree. And then it was a few years later when I began a PhD. Um, I was living in London then that I began looking at lesbian and gay historical um, novels and things like that. So we, and it, the thesis start, started by looking at sort of Victorian gay men's writings, really. And so, yeah, I looked at um, a certain amount of, 
of Victorian pornography um, because it's one area where you do get representations of, of Victorian sex. You don't really find it anywhere more respectable than, than pornography. So, yeah, that's, I think that must have been when I first came across My Secret Life. And then by the time I'd started writing fiction of my own, and certainly for a novel like, well, actually for Tipping the Velvet as well, but certainly for Fingersmith, um, which features a collector of, of pornography based on a real man, Henry Spencer Ashby, who some people have argued might have been Walter, although I've never been quite convinced by that. But Henry Spencer Ashby, again, a, a legend, moneyed Victorian gentleman, um, had a huge collection of pornography and, and wrote these enormous great indexes. And there's a character in Fingersmith, Christopher Lilly, who's sort of doing the same thing. I, I was struck by what seemed an almost sort of pre-Freudian understanding of sexuality. I mean, at one point he talks about uh, being obsessed with listening to women in the bathroom peeing and relates this back to a sort of childhood trauma or childhood incident. And I just sort of thought that seemed very uh, sort of a very 20th century way of sort of understanding sexuality. And I was surprised to find that in a Victorian work. Yeah, it's true, actually, isn't it? I mean, I think he's very self-reflect. I mean, you know, he, he thinks a lot about what he's doing, Walter, and what it might mean and where it's come from. He's, he's, he's interested in what he calls leches, you know, why some people like doing certain things sexually. And he goes through different, different kinds of leches in his life. Um, so when he's a young man, for example, the idea of sodomy he finds a bit revolting. And then he suddenly develops this lech. He wants to have sex with a man. And he gets a, a woman friend um, to, 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 to kind of procure him a man. And they do have sex. And it develops into quite a relationship, really, quite a, quite a fond and sort of poignant relationship. Uh, and Walter has very sort of mixed feelings about it. But, yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely interested in, you know, what you, what you would think of as the sort of undercurrents of sexuality, I suppose, you know, what it's all about, where it's all coming from. And after all, I mean, Freud came out of... I mean, this was published... My Secret Life, I think, was published about 1890 in a very sort of limited private edition. And, you know, this, this was the period that was kind of... Freud was coming out of, wasn't it? So it's not right. it's kind of not that odd of fit, really, in a way. And what, what do we know about how it would have been circulated? I mean, I presume you wouldn't have found a copy in the library <laughs> or, you know, in, in, in the Victorian W.H. Smith. No, there's a book called The Erotomaniac by Ian Gibson, where he talks about Henry Spencer Ashby and Walter. In fact, he's one of the scholars who thinks they're the same person. Well, I, I'm really not convinced by that. Anyway, it's an interesting book, and he talks about the sort of um, background to My Secret Life. And it seems it was published about 1890, I think, in Amsterdam, but in a very, very limited edition. I mean, maybe something like 12 copies or something like that, which it sounds like, you know, were, were, were just what kept, fell into the hands of erotic book enthusiasts, basically. And then one of them ended up in the British Library, <laughs> partly because this is the hilarious thing about Henry Spencer Ashby. He had a big collection of books, not just erotic ones. And when he died, he left them to the British Library in his will, but only on the condition that they took his uh, porn pornography as well. So the British Library was saddled with this huge collection of <laughs> um, pornography, which for many years they kept in what they called the private case. So even when I was doing my PhD, this was the mid-90s, 
This was in the old British Library in the British Museum in the wonderful old, old round reading room. They'd moved now to a much more modern building. But in these days, if you ordered a book that came from the private case, you had to sit at a special table <laughs> near, the, near the issue desk so that they could keep an eye on you, I think, so they you didn't get up to anything dodgy while you were reading them. <laughs> All because of Spencer Ashby. So the British Library has a first edition, I think, of My Secret Life. And I think the Kinsey Institute in America has one too. And I think the rest, I think there's only maybe four or five others, are in private hands even now. Um, but, of course, for a while it's been, it's been freely available, uh, you know, republished. So my edition is this multi-volume edition from the Wordsworth Classic Erotica series which has some very interesting uh, <laughs> i don't know what wordsworth would, would think of this um but there's you know wordsworth classics is a is a list of um, all sorts of classic novels but they have this erotica list and yeah so my secret life is part, is part of that but it's been available now for for, for a while and it's, i can't remember when it was first published in that kind of easily available form but it's been around for a while I think I got the impression it was only published in that form in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. So we've, it might have, might have taken like a, a century of before we were able to handle such a thing. And, and you say, I mean, I'm just this is just to come back to what you were saying before about it being sort of the most explicit um, piece of Victorian pornography. But actually, you know, the, the Victorian pornography business was a very thriving one. And there is still a certain amount of Victorian pornography around and it's, it's, it's explicit, you know, it's very explicit. And some of it I have to say is, is unpleasant and violent just as lots of pornography is these days. But Walter's My Secret Life, you know, doesn't, doesn't actually stand out as being particularly explicit. What make, what it stands out by being so, so long and, you know, sort of voluminous and obsessive really. But yes, but Victorian pornography was, was a big deal. And again, it's this, we have this image of the Victorians as sort of, you know, repressed and straight-laced, but that's because we just see the respectable mm. traces they left. But there was this, uh, you know, there was a street um, called Hollywell Street in London, which was a bit like Soho is today. You know, it was kind of full of shop selling, selling pornography. You know, the moment, as is the case with all these things, the moment photography became a thing, you know, that was put at the service of pornography. So um, you would find shops selling both uh, pornographic novels and pornographic images as well. And of course, prostitution was, or women, you know, working in the, in the sex trade was, was big business in the 19th century too. So just walking down the central London street at certain times of day, you know, you would have seen women working as prostitutes. So um, it's, it was definitely there on the Victorian landscape. It's just that we've sort of filtered it out. Right, know, right. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get in my sense from, from what I've read of My Secret Life is that there was also just this, especially in, I mean, partly because most of his encounters are with, as you pointed out, um, women that he's able to exploit or, you know, servants in his house as a child. Uh, but you do get a sense of a kind of quite rambunctious sexual life of, you know, of, uh, of those below stairs, as it might be. You, you sort of get a sense of a pretty earthy sexuality that, that wasn't that repressed, actually. No, I think that's true. And, he, you know, the way he talks about London parks at night, for example, you know, which, of course, in those days would have been very, very dark sort of spaces. And I think, or, or just streets. I mean, we know this from... Um, from sort of working class oral histories as well, you know, from the early 20th century, that when people, you know, couldn't easily have sex at home, if they were courting, 
you know, you, you, you would find a dark, a dark street or a dark alley or you would go into the park. Um, and those were sort of kind of sort of semi-legitimate places, you know, for people to have sex. There were also, a lot of, if you can believe also, there were also lots of houses, houses of assignation, you know, that if you were in the know, you could just go and kind of rent a room for a while. And presumably they were all kinds of, you know, of levels from the very poor to the very kind of plush, I, I imagine. Um, yes, you do. You're right. It's you get a glimpse of all sorts of sexual life going on here, you know. He doesn't tend to talk, he doesn't talk about his wife, for example, which would have been, which is classic, isn't it? It's that sort of gentleman, that's where the gentleman code comes in. But he'll talk very, very freely about the, the many servants that he, um, that he'll seduce. deflowered. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes you realise how vulnerable women servants were, actually, to the attentions of sort of horny men, um, upstairs, you know, the upper class men in the homes. It was not, I imagine... Um, a happy experience for women to be living with men like that, obviously. Um, but then again, like I was saying before, you sometimes you'll see a woman uh, who's clearly, you know, up for it and sees it as a way uh, to make a bit of money, to have a bit of fun, to get a bit of attention. You know, life is dull, boring, repetitive. So, you know, why not have have a bit of fun with the master? I don't know. You know, there's just a whole. I mean, the great thing about Walter is there's so many sexual encounters that. There's a whole range of stuff going on there, you know, right. and you can speculate for ages about the motives of the, the many, many women he, he encounters. Yeah. I do, however, advise anyone wanting to pick it up to maybe maybe read the um, abbreviated version. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that once you start, though, you just want to keep going so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't really wrap up this conversation without asking for an update on the stage or status of your next novel. Um, I know uh, when we talked at that picnic in the park six years ago, you you told me a story of of sort of getting stuck with the paying guest, your last novel, and and writing a big note to yourself: "Don't ever start a book without knowing how it's going to end." Um, like Dickens, you are someone who likes to have the plot worked out in advance. Mm. Is that is that the case with your new novel? Well, unfortunately, I broke that rule almost immediately with this book, so I didn't really have a good sense of where it was going. I had just, I had a, ve- I was very strongly attra- attracted to a kind of scenario. I realised now, I kind of thought it was a story. So it's, it's been really interesting writing process. I mean, you'd think this is book seven. You'd think they'd be getting easier, wouldn't you? But they're, they've all been very, very different. But I think I've already been working on this one about four years. But the first couple of years were. You know, it was just, I wasn't getting there. It wasn't, I wasn't hearing the characters. I wasn't really, I just couldn't see what the story was really. And then it clicked about two years ago. So I'm hoping, um, I'm on the home stretch now and hoping to finish by the end of this year. So it won't be out before next year. And that's assuming, you know, all goes straight forward from now. But it's, it's, uh, it's set in the 50s this time. It's another British one, British set one. It's not gay. There isn't a gay character in sight. It's almost aggressively heterosexual. It's a family, <laughs> family drama, really. It's about a working class family who make a move to a, to a new community. And there are all sorts of, gets a bit gothic with the neighbours. It's one of my gothic novels a bit like the little stranger um, right. before last which is a kind of haunted house novel so it's been um yeah it's been a very interesting book to write but i'm i'm ho- yeah hopefully on the on the home str- it's got a long home stretch but hopefully i'm on that home stretch now well a new sarah waters novel is always an event and it will be well worth the wait so i i uh, I, I feel we can all wait another year thank you so much for today um this was fantastic you're, you're really 
a literary idol of mine. It's uh, such a pleasure to be able to talk to you at length about the books that have influenced and inspired you. We've talked about two books that you would salvage for your desert island, let's say. How about recent book discoveries? Is there anything in the last year or two on your bedside table that has stuck with you? This sounds like a lockdown joke, and it isn't, of course, a discovery, but I'm reading War and Peace at the moment, which um, I was promised myself to read. I love Anna Karenina, and people have said to me over the years, if you love Anna Karenina, you'll like War and Peace. And it's true. I love it. So I'm I think I'm 900 pages in with a mere 500 still. <laughs> but that's, I'm sort of dipping in and out of that. Um, I've just uh, I've just been sent an advanced copy of the new Joan Silver novel called hmm. Secrets of Happiness. And I loved her last book, Improvement. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Shelf Life. My thanks, as always, to our producer, Ilya Maritz, and to our sound engineer, Tim Wood, who also created the soundtrack to the show. You can find this episode and others like it at Grand Journal. That's grandjournal.net.